pray that they would experience it today, God. Cling to you um, and not be able to run away. In the name I pray, amen. Amen. Good morning. Thank you again for being at Malvern Hill. Please be seated. My name's Craig, and I'm the senior pastor here, and it's our privilege to have you with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in the book of Mark in just a few minutes. A couple of things I would just like to thank you all for uh, so many of you that uh, helped out and contributed to our, during our barbecue this weekend. Thank you especially to Pastor Buster for all the work that he put in to organize and lead all that. He uh, really just is the... He, um, he's the brains behind it, but I think more than that, he's the heart and soul behind it, and I just appreciate all that he does, and so many of you that gave so much time this weekend, thank you for all of your help related to that. I uh, also want to give you just a couple of announcements. There is a baptism coming up. Baptism, baptism is way safer than a cruise ship for this time of the year, so a uh, little joke. Um, we, uh, we would, if you have accepted the Lord recently and have not yet, Follow the Lord in baptism. I would urge you to do that soon. So if you would like to talk to us about that, please shoot me an email. Give me a call. There's a form on our website that you can fill out that just says, I want to be baptized. And we can get all the information that you need related to that. So March the 22nd is when we will be doing that. There's also a Next Steps class next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. If you've been visiting with us for some time and you're not exactly sure what the next step should be for you, maybe you don't know what it looks like, or maybe you're just still undecided about exactly how you want to fit in or believe you can fit in here at Malvern Hill, I would invite and urge you to come and be with us uh, next Sunday afternoon. I lead that class. We meet in the conference room, which is right outside that door right there, and I would invite you to come and be with us next Sunday at 4 o'clock. All right, with those things being said, I appreciate you being here. Hopefully by now you've made it to the book of Mark. We're in the book of Mark, chapter 14, and we're going to begin reading in verse 43. Mark 14, verse 43. Please stand with me in honor of God's word. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Let's pray together. Father God, would you show us how it is that the fulfillment of Scripture, Lord God, resulted in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. Show us, Father, how the fulfillment of Scripture can give us a deeper faith and a greater trust in your Word and in the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. And Father, if there be one among us today, or two or three, who perhaps, Lord Jesus, have never given their life to Christ because they've not been convinced of the reality of your word, of its truthfulness, of its power. Lord, perhaps they've not even been convinced, Lord, of the truthfulness of the existence and of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord God, would today be the day that through the evidence of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, 
that their hearts would be changed, that their minds would be changed, and that, Lord God, their lives would be changed forever. Lord God, let us never approach this word without a full confidence in its power to change lives. Work this morning in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I want to talk about the apologetic of fulfilled scripture. Now if you're new to us or new to Christianity, then you hear me say apologetic and you think of apologize and you may think that I'm trying to say I'm sorry for the scripture, but that is actually a word that comes from a Greek word, apologia, that means defense. And so what I'm saying here this morning is that the, the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture is actually a defense of the validity and the truthfulness of God's Word. We can trust the Bible in part because the Bible prophesied things in the Old Testament that were later fulfilled in the life, death, burial, resurrection, even the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ through His church. The Old Testament speaks of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I believe the Old Testament whispers of Jesus, and at times the Old Testament screams of Jesus. But we've just got to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to perceive all that God's Word has for us. But how is it that the Old Testament speaks of Jesus? Well, the Old Testament prophesies of Jesus. But when I use the word prophesy, I'm curious what it is that you might think. Now, a prophecy is not the same as a prediction, and it's not the same as a coincidence. Shaquille O'Neal is seven foot one and well over 300 pounds. As a matter of fact, I heard him do an interview a while back that said he made it over 400 pounds. They said, man, what, what, what did you do? What's your problem? And I just can't get over this. Now, seven foot one and 400 pounds. Said, he said, my problem is I just eat too many sandwiches. And I thought, mercy sakes, you seven foot one. What kind of sandwiches are you eating to get to 400 pounds? And they said, do you mean like sub sandwiches? Like firehouse sub sandwiches? He said, turkey sandwiches. Man, do you imagine that? He said, come on. Turkey. He said, yeah, I mean, it's just a bad habit. I, I do, do, do a, a broadcast and get home at 3 o'clock in the morning and make myself five or six turkey sandwiches sit down and eat them. I said, man, 3 o'clock in the morning, I don't want a turkey sandwich. I just want to go to bed. But Shaq is seven foot one. He's over 300 pounds. He wears a size 22 shoe. Do y'all, how many of y'all were like teenagers when Shaquille O'Neal was still playing basketball? And you could walk into a lot of Foot Locker stores. Y'all remember this? And because Shaq was such a big deal, literally and figuratively, they would have one of his shoes in the store, a big size 22 shoe. I mean, that thing's like a ski. How, old you, how tall do you think Shaq was at 12 years old? Six five, somebody said. Five foot ten. Five foot ten. Now I'm just gonna I'm sorry, by the way, son. I apologize. I should have gotten your permission before I did this. But we have at least one one twelve year old here that's five foot ten. He happens to be a Thompson. We've had lots of twelve year olds here who are five foot ten. I think I'm looking at another one right now. We have had some 5 foot 10, 12 year olds in this church. We've had some girls that hit 5, 10 at 12 years old in this church. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that none of our kids are going to hit 7 foot 1. Right? I don't think that Shaq's 5 foot 10, 12 year old frame is necessarily a predictor for me to be able to say that either one of my kids are going to make it to 7 foot 1, even though at least two of them are going to probably hit 5 foot 10 before they get, at, get past 12 years old. 
You understand, a, a prophecy in the New Testament is not the same as a, pr a prediction. We don't project things out based on what somebody else did. The weatherman makes predictions too. Now, the weatherman doesn't make predictions based off the fact that Shaq was seven foot one, and so anybody that hits five foot ten, the weatherman makes predictions at least slightly more informed. They have known very well, apparently, all year long that we weren't going to get one flake of snow. I'm pretty mad about that. I'm just going to be honest with you. I know some of y'all are looking forward to spring. It'll suit me fine. Spring holds off another six weeks, and I get 12 inches of snow every week from now to then. Wouldn't that be awesome? But you know what the weatherman says? It's going to be 70 degrees tomorrow because the weatherman hates me. But why does the weatherman believe that to be true? Because they make predictions. We have these El Nino things that I still don't understand. They like to talk about them all the time. Apparently, that's why we are so wet. I mean, you can swim through our parking lot right now, and it ain't raining in three days. But the weatherman makes predictions, or weather woman, the weather person, the meteorologist, I don't want to be discriminatory, makes these predictions not based off of divine foreknowledge, but based off of patterns, right? And, and like, technology is so incredible that we, with uneducated minds, I like to style myself as something of an amateur meteorologist, and so I can take the weather, don't laugh at me, um, I can open up the Weather Channel app, and I can look, and I can see where the, the jet stream is, and I can look and see what was happening in Seattle yesterday, and I can know that if it happened in Seattle yesterday, and the jet stream's doing just the right kind of thing, that there's a chance that something similar is going to happen over here four or five days from yesterday, so three or four days from now, and I can look and see if there's moisture in the Gulf that we're going to get wet between now and, and Wednesday, and all those other things, but we're able to do that based off of computer models that make predictions based off of patterns that have happened in the past prophecy on the other hand is not a prediction now I did find this interesting one definition I found online labeled prophecy and prediction as synonyms now I wasn't able to figure out exactly that was just one of those weird searches so I don't know that it was a reputable dictionary but I, th I thought it was really sad, or perhaps that it really belies something of the secular nature of our age. Only in the secular, secularized West would anyone suggest that a prediction and a prophecy were the same thing. Because a prophecy is much more. It is the inspired declaration of divine will and purpose. A prophecy is not a prediction based off of patterns. Instead, a prophecy is a word spoken as a result of the divine declaration of God. Prophecy signifies the speaking forth of the mind and the counsel of God. Now, much of the Old Testament prophecy was predictive, but prophecy is not necessarily foretelling the will of God. It is, however, the declaration of that which cannot be known by natural means. You like that? That sounded so good you knew I didn't write it, didn't it? But it's true. Prophecy is the declaration of that which cannot be known by natural means. So when we read that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, what we need to understand is that Jesus was not just a figure predicted to come about at some time in the future and do some stuff. He was the Son of God whose arrival into the world and subsequent death, burial, and resurrection were decreed from when? From before the foundation of the world was laid, according to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. We saw that just a few weeks ago. And so Paul, for instance, would have us to understand the role of prophecy 
even in Paul's most concise definition of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 5. I'll just read that to you. You can turn there if you'd like. But Paul said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Do you understand that prophecy is not just an occurrence in the Bible, it is central to the gospel message. Jesus said so, Paul said so, and this morning we will consider a few ways that the Old Testament speaks to Jesus and why it matters. This morning first I want you to see, uh, well let me come back to, to Mark 14 first. So this morning we, we, we've seen this, this account in Mark 14 of, of Jesus being betrayed by Judas. And our focus this morning out of this passage is going to be that phrase from Jesus, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Now Mark gives us what is the most concise telling of this account. Now in John's telling of this account, we see a, a more broad understanding that in that moment Jesus spoke and it says that the guards fell back. That with the, the sound of his voice that Jesus controlled power, the authority of God was known when Jesus spoke. Mark tells us that somebody drew their sword and cut off someone's ear. The other accounts tell us that Peter is the one. Is anybody surprised, right? Peter's always acting before he thinks. It's an amazing thing that the Lord could take a man like Peter and create him to be the pillar of the church. God sanctified Peter's desires and Peter's motivations and Peter's activity and excitement. But when all of his disciples for a brief moment were willing to fight and maybe even to die for Jesus, Jesus says, y'all stop. And then Jesus says, take me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Why was it important that the scriptures be fulfilled? And what do the scriptures say to us about Jesus? I want to see four things. First thing is that the Old Testament prophesied Jesus' betrayal. The Old Testament prophesied Jesus' betrayal. Let me just read one verse to you. Psalm 31, 11, Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and, object, and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. Jesus' betrayal was prophesied and decreed from all time. Jesus knew it was coming. We saw that over and over and over again in the past few weeks, haven't we? Jesus said, but woe to him, right? Woe to him who does this. But he, Jesus knew in that moment, Jesus prophesied that one who stuck his hand into the bowl with him, one who sat at the table with him at that last supper, one of those men would betray him. The Old Testament prophesied it. Jesus prophesied it. It was decreed and intended from all time. And it's important for us to understand. It's not as though that there was somebody on earth that had the power to betray Jesus unless Jesus had the will to be, to be betrayed. It was the intent of God from all eternity that Jesus would die. Now, let's just back up for a minute. There's been... Some prominent Bible scholars, one in particular, that said that this is a picture of cosmic child abuse. That the father would decree that the son would give his life. Folks, I want us to understand for just a moment that the father God never decreed anything that the son did not want. It's not as though that we've got the father and the son and the Holy Spirit and they're all sort of separate. They are one. That's why we understand the Trinity. 
Right? It's also not that in the Old Testament we had the Father, and then during the Gospels we had the Son, and today we have the Holy Spirit of God. That's, that's a heresy called modalism. It says that there's separate um, experiences of God, that God has existed in separate ways throughout different epochs or different periods in history. No, we understand, the Bible teaches that there is a trinity. There are three persons in one. Now, is it difficult for us to wrap our brains around? Absolutely. But is it true? Yes. Why would we want to believe in a God who's so difficult for us to understand? Let me ask you this. Why in the world would you want to worship a God that you could understand and control? That makes absolutely no sense. One of the greatest frustrations in my life is when I pay money to go to a conference or go to a seminar or go to somewhere and somebody tells me something, then they don't tell it as well as I could have told it myself. That drives me nuts. I paid you money to come tell me something I already knew. That doesn't make any sense. Some of you go, I tithe to listen to him preach. I get it, I get it. I said, fine. Why would we want a God that we can control? That's no God at all, right? If the God that I worship is Craig Thompson, I am going to be sorely disappointed in a hurry. <laughs> I praise God, none of y'all think you should worship me. But when, when we get to, to these, these, these prophecies about Jesus' betrayal, we, 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 we've got to keep in mind, okay? We don't have these separate experiences of God. I don't have God the Father saying, Jesus, you do this or else. And the Holy Spirit over here going, well, if y'all want to do it, I'm all in. Whatever makes y'all happy. I'm just in for the part. No, that, that's not the case. In the Trinity, we have this strange, and, 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 and I, I like the way that, that it's been described in some places, this cosmic dance that exists between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that somehow or other they are all completely united and separate all at the same time. And in that place, they are of one will and one mind. It's not as though the Father ever wanted something that the Son didn't want or the Spirit didn't want. It's not as though the Holy Spirit ever wanted to gift somebody or draw them to the Father whom the Father did not want. It's never been the case that Jesus said, I want to save that person. And God said, no, no, no. That's never been the case. They all work collectively together with the same thought and the same mind and the same desire. And so when the Bible says that the Son submitted to the will of the Father, it's not as though Jesus was begrudgingly going, well, all right, God, I guess if this is what you want to do, I guess. Now, we know that by the time we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus has taken off his divinity and put on flesh, as he stepped down and dwelt among us, we know that he has to battle with his flesh. That's one of the humbling aspects of Jesus' earthly ministry is the reality there that Jesus is willing to subject himself to the pain and the struggle that comes with being clothed in the flesh. But in that place, it's not as though Jesus' divine nature is saying, I don't want to honor the Father and that I have a different mind than the Father. He's just saying what we all understand to be the truth when we've taken on flesh, that this is a hard thing that I really don't want to do. We read Old Testament prophecy that says that Jesus is going to be betrayed. And we see the Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is going to die. We don't understand in this place that God the Father said, you've got to go do this or else. we got to understand that it was, it was decreed from before the foundation of the earth. That God who has existed as Trinity for all time had decided from before the foundation of the earth were ever laid that Jesus would die for the goodwill of man and for the glory of God. And so Jesus' betrayal was prophesied. 
And it's important for us to understand that because we don't want a God who can be overcome by any man. Instead, we need a God who willingly submits himself to these things because he loves us. The Old Testament prophesied Jesus' betrayal. Secondly, the Old Testament prophesies Jesus' death. Consider, for instance, Isaiah 53, 4-5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. If Jesus died by accident, that would prove nothing. If Jesus died even for his own passion, that would prove nothing. But if Jesus died for a purpose by the decree of a holy God, then there is more to the story. When we consider prophecy, we also have to look not only to the direct prophecies, but to the stories in the Old Testament that sometimes you come across as a little different, a little confusing, until you read them through the lens of revealed Scripture. Right? So we've got these direct prophecies that we would get in Isaiah 53, for instance. But we also have some of these indirect prophecies of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. One of those indirect prophecies of Jesus' death... Was, that, was this picture in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the, the, the children of Israel there during the Exodus, they sinned against the Lord. And as a result, the Bible says that God allowed fiery serpents. And, and, and where do we get this word fiery serpents, by the way? Right? Just, just They weren't on fire. That was just a, a figurative way to understand that they were venomous serpents. They bit you and it burned and you died. Okay, That's where we get fiery serpents. So don't go off thinking that we had like these little fiery snakes running around. That's not what it was. But the Bible says that the Lord allowed that to happen. And as that began to, to break out, that, that the Lord also provided a way for the people to be rescued. And the way that he provided for the people to be rescued was that he said to Moses, construct a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and hold it up in, a, put it up in, amongst, in the midst of the people of Israel. And anytime they are bit, if they will look to the snake, if they will look to the pole, then they can live. We get this... Strange retelling in the New Testament says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so too would Christ be lifted up. Why in the world would God do that in the Old Testament as a shadow pointing us to the greater fulfilled reality in Jesus? That if we would but look to the cross, to the one who was hung on a pole for our sins, if we would but look, we can be saved. There's this beautiful, wonderful, powerful sermon that Charles Spurgeon preaches. And he talks about looking to the cross. He said, if you can't, cry, if you can't speak, if you can't cry out, would you but look? But look and you can be saved. The Old Testament prophesies Jesus' death. We can go through the Old Testament and begin to find these stories that weave a picture. Folks, do you wonder why it was that Jesus had to die? Jesus had to die so that we could live. Now, I want to make sure that you... Well, we'll get to that in a minute. So, we, the Old Testament prophesies Jesus' death. Third this morning, the Old Testament prophesies Jesus' resurrection. Now, where do we find the very first prophecy of Jesus' resurrection? The answer is all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We will turn to that one. Man, we got all sorts of time this morning. I'm talking fast. Let's go turn to it together. I mean, it's not like y'all got an hour less sleep last night or anything. As a pastor, like the worst Sunday is, is if, if, if um, the 4th of July falls on a Sunday and all y'all leave, right? So I, I preach to like six people. 
The second worst Sunday of the year is always the day after daylight savings time because y'all all look like zombies. And uh, so it's difficult, uh, uh, you know, you got to try and keep everybody engaged, but we got so much time. First Corinthians, er, oh, mercy sakes, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what we see, we call the proto-evangelion. The very first evangel, the very first gospel. He will strike at your head. You will, bru- or you will strike at his head and he will bruise your heel. This understanding that we can look back in the Old Testament and see this picture and know. Now, I, I want to be clear. There was nobody, nobody in Moses' time that read that verse and said, I bet this is telling us about a Jesus who's going to come and die and rise from the dead. We've got to understand that prophecy, just like all of God's will, is almost always best understood in the rearview mirror. What happened is as Jesus' disciples experienced his death, burial, and resurrection, they began to interpret that event through the experiences of the Old Testament they had learned and read. You say, Craig, why would they begin to believe that all these prophecies pointed to Jesus? Why would they begin to preach that? Why would they give their lives for that? Because they saw the risen Lord. Don't miss that. They saw the risen Lord. They experienced the risen Lord. They were able to put hands upon the risen Lord. They were able to eat meals with the risen Lord. They were able to go for walks with the risen Lord. They saw the evidence of His resurrection. And there's a whole lot of people that want to tell us that when it comes to something like the resurrection of Jesus, that people believed in the resurrection of Jesus because they weren't as scientifically, under, uh, scientifically progressed as we are. That once that they had had a, an evolutionary experience with science, then they would know that, revolution, that, that resurrection was scientifically impossible and just, quite frankly, dumb. Now, I I struggle with this because it's not as though you can take uneducated people and convince them that people just always come back from the dead. We do have to keep in mind that 2,000 years ago, people didn't rise from the dead any more than they do today. As a matter of fact, if we were going to try to convince somebody of the possibility of resurrection, I would argue it would be easier to convince somebody in 2020 than it ever would be to convince somebody... 2,000 years ago, because today, with the advent of medical technology, we actually know that people can be brought back to life. We know that. We've got these experiences of people who've been dead for minutes, and, and sometimes many minutes, and yet be brought back to life. I could see a scenario where somebody would begin to believe that if you could just keep things going just the right way at just the right amount of time, then we might be able to bring them back. Nobody 2,000 years ago believed that was possible. Why? Because when people dead died, when people dead, when people dead, they stayed dead. <laughs> it's just what happened. That's what happened 2,000 years ago. That's what happened 4,000 years ago. That's what happened 45 minutes ago. When people died, they stayed dead. Jesus' disciples weren't necessarily educated people, but folks, they didn't believe that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Because nobody else had. They had no reason to believe that was going to happen. And yet something incredible happened to such a degree that not only did they say he rose from the dead, they were willing to give their lives to say that he rose from the dead. They were willing to take the Old Testament scriptures and to read back through them and to go, Oh, 
It screamed at us all along, and we were so blind. Consider another passage this morning that prophesies of Jesus' resurrection. One of my favorites, Psalm chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Why? Because he pulled him up from the pit of destruction and set him on the rock. God brought him back from the miry pit and he has saved and redeemed him. Folks, once we understand and believe in the resurrection of Jesus, once we have experienced the resurrected Lord, it becomes difficult for us not to read the Old Testament and to see all these illusions that point us back to Jesus. Finally, the Old Testament prophesies Jesus' ongoing ministry to the church. See, Jesus' ministry to the church didn't end at His resurrection. Instead, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be at work among us. This, again, is not a work of New Testament fiction, but the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Since you already have your Bibles there, go ahead and turn over to Isaiah if you can find it. Okay, Psalms in the middle, you just keep turning from there and you'll run across Isaiah. Just a few books past. Isaiah chapter 44 in verse 3. Not only is this a picture of God's prophecy in the Old Testament, it should be one of our prayers that we pray on a regular basis. 44 verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. What an incredible picture we have of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the thirsty and dry ground of our souls as God's Holy Spirit would invade and invigorate and bring life. But if you think I'm just sort of Making that up on my own, turn to John chapter 16. And I want you to see exactly how it is that the Bible shows us the fulfillment of the Scripture in John chapter 16, verse 7. John 16, 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, that it is to your advantage that I go away. For I do, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world. What a great privilege and picture we have of the Holy Spirit of God coming to us. To save us, to redeem us through the blood of Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God comes and fills His church. How is it that we can have a hope that we might do ministry to the world? How is it that we have hope that we might convince people of this miraculous story? It's only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I, I like to talk a bit about, about how we as, as believers, if we're not careful, we can lose sight of the fact that we have an unbelievable story to tell. We, we really do. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember. And when I say unbelievable, I, I don't just mean like, wow, that's amazing. I mean, it is unbelievable. Right? We, we tell people that, that, that we want them to believe that there is a man who came from God, who was God in the flesh, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived 33 years of sinless perfection, that he died on an old rugged cross in the fulfillment of prophetic word. That he laid in the grave for three days and that just like Jonah prophesied that he would come up out of that grave three days later. That he would live among men and women for 40, 40 days following that. And then he would ascend to heaven where he sits 
today at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. Folks, that sounds like fairy tale fiction if we're not careful. Unless the Holy Spirit of God invigorates and fills those messages. Unless the Holy Spirit of God draws the heart of men, He convicts men and women of their sin and drives them to understand the power and the truthfulness of that word. Now, I, here's what I didn't say. I didn't say that those are words that can't be believed. I believe that the more, I don't just believe, I know that the more you study God's word, the more truth you find in God's word. The deeper you dig, the more you find that it is true. You can't poke holes in the historical nature of God's word. People have tried to do it now for more than 2,000 years and they have failed repeatedly. But I am telling you that when we're trying to give a three-minute gospel presentation, unless the Holy Spirit of God fills that moment, we've got a tough sell on our hands. But we don't have to worry about that because the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit of God has come. And He continues to be at work in His church and among the people of God to change us, to empower us, to move among us. What is it? Have you ever had that moment where you just saw somebody in the street or you met somebody at a store and there was that urge that you had to go and to share hope with them? To give them the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where do you think that comes from? The Holy Spirit of God that lays that burden on our hearts that we should go and we should pray or that we should speak or that we should give or that we should offer. The Holy Spirit of God at work among the people of God to bring about the things of God. Where does all that leave us? It leaves us with a pretty heavy sermon for us to wrestle through on the first Sunday after a time change, doesn't it? Thinking about prophecy, thinking about fulfillment. Where does that leave us? First thing we see, I, I want you to hear me say, we don't study the Bible, and we certainly don't wrestle with prophecy for academic fulfillment and intellectual stimulation alone. It will do both. But we study God's Word because in it we find hope and life. We study God's Word because in studying it, we discover that we need Jesus. That we need the Gospel and that we need hope in the darkness. We study it because in studying it we learn that we can believe it. We study it because in studying it we understand that He came he died, He rose again, and that we know that the Bible tells us that He is going to return. We study it because it's not finished yet. The book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 through 14 says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. We study God's Word because in the study of God's Word, the more we study prophecy, the more we dig in, the more we learn that we can trust it. And the more we learn that we can trust the Bible, the more we learn that we can trust Jesus. And the more we learn that we can trust Jesus, the more we begin to understand that He's enough. He's enough to forgive our sins. He's enough to satisfy our deepest longings. 
The more we dig into God's word, the more we discover that he's faithful and true. We actually do more than just read, but we actually begin to believe that he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. When we study Old Testament prophecy and see its fulfillment in the New Testament, we begin to be convinced that God's word is true and faithful. And we actually begin to believe that God can take our sin and shame and turn it into our salvation. We, we actually begin to believe what God's word says, that, that God can actually... He can take our disappointments and use them for His glory. We begin to believe. We begin to understand that as hard as it is, that all things work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That even the death of the King of kings and the Lord of lords could work in God's good plan and good purpose to bring about the salvation of many and of many more yet to come. As we read and as we study God's Word, we find hope and we find life. We find joy. And we find peace. So this morning, how does the Old Testament speak of Jesus and what does it matter for you? The Old Testament promised us that there would be one who would come as our deliverer. That he would set us free and that he would be a king forever. And what does that mean for you today? It means that that king has a name and his name is Jesus. And you can trust him. And he is enough. So do you come today? Do you come today broken? He will heal you. Do you come today hurt? He can bind up those wounds. Do you come today carrying a burden of sin? Do you know that He will forgive you? Do you come today depressed and discouraged? Do you know that Jesus can deliver you? Do you come today lonely and scared? Do you know that Jesus can and will be a friend that will stick closer than a brother? Do you come needy? I've got great news for you. If you showed up here today broken and needy, you showed up just as the kind of person that God loves to fill up. So I invite you this morning. I invite you. Not to an academic debate or a prophecy seminar. I invite you to come to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I invite you to come and to find salvation and hope. I invite you to come and to find fulfillment. I invite you to come and find purpose. I invite you to come and see that He can take the broken pieces of your life and put them back together again. I invite you to come today and to be delivered from death to life. I invite you to come today and to be saved. What does that require? It requires you to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. To look to Jesus. You say, Craig, I don't know if I can do anything else. Can I tell you that if you can just look, it's all that we need.
just as the serpent in the wilderness was enough, so too Jesus was lifted up and he's enough. Would you come today? Would you come today and find hope? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you that Jesus is enough. That Father God, from Genesis to Revelation, you speak of his goodness and of his glory. That Father God, from the beginning to the end, Lord God, your story is one story. The story of a God who's taking a broken world and putting it back together. The story of a God who's wiping away tears. And Lord God, who's bringing an end to the curse. Lord God, a story of a God who will one day wipe out death. The story of a God who died on a cross and overcame death, hell, sin, and the grave so that, Lord God, we could face this life with confidence and joy, knowing that on the other side of our death awaits an eternity filled with hope. Lord God, would you convince us of that today? In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we sing this morning. If there's anything the Lord would have you to do today, would you come? Would you come today and give your life to Christ? Would you come today and be saved?